Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Hello and welcome to this edition of Voices of Africa. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Moki Makura. Moki is someone who I've known for over a decade. I'm not sure exactly when it was that we first met or interacted, but I've been a keen admirer of hers over the years. When we first met, she was working, I think I'm right in saying, at the Tony Elamelu Foundation. But before then, you were a TV presenter and producer. You then joined the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as Deputy Director of Communications for Africa. And more recently, you've set up an NGO called Africa No Filter, an organization that is very much focused on addressing harmful and stereotypical narratives of Africa. You're a storyteller, a author, a presenter. I think I read somewhere on your Wikipedia entry that you've also been an actress at a different time in your life. You're a businesswoman, and I know you to be a passionate advocate for Africa. So I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to speak to you today, Moki. Welcome to Voices of Africa. Thank you very much, Marcus. And it just goes to show you don't watch the kind of TV that I make, because I was an actress for quite a while. In fact, a lot of people remember me as an actress, and that's all they know. So tell us more about that acting role. <laughs> well, actually, it's on DSTV still at the moment. I came across wow. it, Jacob. All the seasons we recorded. And that was my first, I guess, foray into acting. And it was because I was on television and somebody assumed I could act and they were looking for a Nigerian who spoke exactly like I do. So I didn't do much acting. I did that for quite a few years, actually. I played Lake, who was the daughter of the, I don't know, I can't remember. But anyway, <laughs> I did that for a while. It was like Dallas, it was like an African version of Dallas. So tell us, did you grow up wanting to be an actress? No, I didn't. But it's funny because I'm currently moving house. So I'm going through a lot of old papers and documents. And one of the things I found was an old report that said that I should either go and be a journalist or I should try my hand at acting because I appeared to enjoy that quite a lot. So it's ironic that I actually did become an actress because I promise you it was not on my career radar at all. So tell us about where you grew up and your studies, and then what was on your career radar as you graduated from university? Well, I grew up in Nigeria, so I left Nigeria when I was nine. I went to boarding school in the UK, and I think I was the only African, certainly the only black person in my entire school in Morven, Worcestershire, middle of the English countryside. So I was there for a very long time. So I have one of my best friends is from there, but I think I was quite a challenging child. <laughs> I, I got into a lot of trouble. I could have been suspended once or twice, possibly expelled, but not, not sure about that anymore. Asia has a wonderful way of just refining your past. But anyway, and then I went to university in the UK, University of Buckingham, which was Margaret Thatcher's baby. It was a private university. And then I started working. But what I do know is that I wasn't clear what I wanted to do, but I remember when I left university, the jobs that seemed to abound were media sales. So my first job was actually setting up advertising space. 
on I think it was a it was a technical magazine so it was it was called IT Weekly or some classified advertising space but I will say Marcus one of the best things I have ever done is learn how to sell because people <laughs> don't understand that at some point in your life you will be selling something to someone be it yourself if you're in an interview to selling a product or a service and learning how to do it like hardcore learning how to sell classified ads it's cold calling people really, I think was one of the most amazing things I have done in my career, because I've used it relentlessly ever since. Very interesting. You went into advertising with no particular career ambitions. And then how soon afterwards did you end up at the Tony Elamelu Foundation? There's a whole generation of, of jobs in between in between that. I mean, I, I basically, I started off in PR communications. So that was my first proper job, like career job. And I used to work for a lady called Lynn Franks, who was the person the series Absolutely Fabulous was based on. It actually really was life. And I think it's not Edina Patsy. She was Edina, actually. The storyline was true because we came in every week and we'd ask the then office manager who used to be Lynn's PA, that was that storyline true? And she'd say, yes, it was. So a lot of that stuff that happened in Absolutely Fabulous was true. But anyway, that's a series that few people will remember now. But I then moved to South Africa. So after, I mean, I worked for Text 100. I worked for a couple of PR agencies. I freelanced a lot, but, you know, PR was what I did. And then I decided I needed to come home. And the realization that I needed to come home was when I, one day I looked and I realized that I was not going to ever run the business I was working in because I wasn't white and I wasn't Jewish. I mean, let's face it. So I thought, you know what, let me go back home to somewhere where my color and wasn't going to be a disadvantage. And actually also who I was was an advantage because I came from Nigeria. I had connections there. So that was the idea to go to Nigeria and and just live there and work and just contribute. But it was at the time of a bachelor who was a military dictator. At the time, Nigeria was not the best time to go back. And my mother was like, do not come back now. So I started looking around where I could go that was in Africa. And I stumbled, literally stumbled on South Africa. And here I am, 20-something plus years later. I came out here as an adventurer, figure out what was going on. And one day I looked down, I had a husband, I had children, I had dogs, and I've been here ever since. But you did live in Lagos, didn't you, for a while? In between, yes. I left South Africa to go and work for Tony Alumini Foundation in Nigeria. And I did that for about a year and a half. And then ran back because the Chardonnay and the salads are so much <laughs> nicer in South Africa. So you moved to South Africa and there you worked for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, working again in communications and PR. My first question I wanted to ask you was, over that period, which must be 20 years or so, how have you seen the role and contribution of corporate communications, PR, change during that time? I think you will agree that it's changed quite dramatically. I mean, I remember where, I mean, we still, to a certain extent, have to justify the importance of communications and PR. But now there is a role that didn't exist in my time, which was chief communications officer, where actually communications is possibly the most important skill set on a board now, because it's all about communication to stakeholders. And if you're professional and you know how to do it, I think there's a job for life, actually, for anybody that's in the communications field. So there have been a lot of changes. One of the things I do understand is that the way that in my, when I was younger and we used to do communications, it was much more about media coverage and, you know, just 
your public persona or as an organization. And I think now internal communications is equally important, particularly in organizations mm -hmm. that are large. And I think that internal communications is something that wasn't really that important <laughs> when I started. So I think this whole stakeholder mapping, like who are the stakeholders for this business or your organization or your institution and understanding that each of them need a communication plan or approach to speak to them because it's critical now. Yes, I mean, you might expect me to have an opinion on this same question. I think we've observed enormous change over the last couple of decades. Certainly from the vantage point of industry, it's no longer right or appropriate to sit on the sidelines, business have to take a stand. They don't exist in a vacuum. And there's an expectation from employees, certainly, and you refer to internal communications, but from customers too, and broader grouping of stakeholders that they should use their influence to drive societal level change that's positive for, for society. So I've certainly experienced and been exposed to the upweighting of the corporate relations, corporate communications role within institutions. And I think that's, that's all for the good. Tell me, from when Africa Practice started to now, I mean, the change or the shift in the kind of... I see what you're doing there. You're, re you're reversing the roles, <laughs> the presenter and the broadcaster. In you. Yes, it has been significant. 20 years ago, particularly multinationals, they like to keep their heads down and make profit. And they didn't really want anyone beyond their shareholders to know that they were making profit on the continent of Africa. And for multinationals, again... It was hard actually to discern how much profit they were making within Africa distinct from EMEA. They were grouped as, as one big basket and the African businesses were encouraged to keep their heads down. The only real communications they do, and I'm exaggerating, I suppose, to make a point, but was around CSR photos right. and press releases to announce community investments and contributions. You remember those awful big checks that used to be handed out <laughs> regularly, I big remember. for photo opportunities. We've come a long way since then. And more recently, as I was referring to earlier, the role of the chief corporate relations officer is an exco role across much of our client base at Africa practice. And the expectation is that that responsibility encompasses both sort of risk mitigation and opportunity creation. So increasingly, the corporate relations function is responsible for creating market opportunities for business, which is very different from where we were a couple of decades ago, as you, as you reference. And the point I made earlier is that organizations are expected to take a stand. They don't exist in a vacuum. Businesses have choices and the actions that they take have direct impacts and effects on, on people, on politics and the environment. And taking a stand in favor or against certain laws or policies, there's an expectation that businesses should be doing that. There are obviously diverse stakeholder considerations and eclectic views amongst their stakeholders that they need to, to weigh up. But simply sitting on the sidelines saying nothing is no longer sufficient to maintain license to operate. So yeah, so the role of the, the corporate relations officer or or chief communications officer is, is certainly more significant than it was historically. And bigger functions, bigger teams of people, which is... Mm. No, absolutely. Anyway, I've fallen into your trap. You've got me talking, and that's, <laughs> this is not the purpose of this, this broadcast. It's for me to talk to you and for you to re reveal yourself and to reveal your motivations and what I know to be the great work that you're doing. So we're going we're gonna to touch now, if, if we can, on the work that I know you to be doing today. So you founded an organization called Africa No Filter, an amazing organization. When did you found Africa No Filter and why? 
Okay, so I was the startup CEO of Africana Filter. I didn't found it per se because it was a project of the Ford Foundation. And okay. they created a project that all of their Africa offices could work on that they all felt was important. And one was the fact that this narrative around the continent, and one was the fact that this narrative around the continent seemed to be perpetually sort of about poverty and no progress and just that things weren't kind of progressing, things weren't happening, despite the fact that the organizations like the Ford Foundation had been doing things in Africa for a long time. So that's where the project started. And I think they soon realized that this was bigger than just one organization. And then they approached a number of different foundations. And the first executive decision they took was to find an executive director. And that was me. And actually, when I was at the Gates Foundation, I had been approached to fund the initiative. I thought it was an amazing initiative, but it wasn't something strategically that lined up with what we were doing at Gates. So I tied for the job and we've grown it from then. And it started actually just before COVID hit. So I resigned and then they announced me and then literally the world shut down. And I was like, yikes, what have I done? And it's the best decision I made. There are a lot of decisions I made because we're in COVID. One, which is pretty significant, is that we were going to be a virtual organization. So I have a team, some of which to this day, and I'm horrified to say I still haven't met. We speak almost every day. Um, Well, we speak every day, Monday to Thursday, not Friday. But that was one decision. And just the fact that I was able to recruit people wherever they were and not have to move them to head office in, in South Africa or open up offices anywhere. That was the start. But I will tell you, I sent an email to somebody around the time, you know, six months into the role and just saying, I'm doing this amazing role. It's African filter. It's about shifting narrative. And they said to me, and it was just a moment that made me stop. Moki, you've been doing this literally all of your career, trying to shift narratives, telling stories. And all of a sudden, a couple of years down the line, I actually have a job that's paying me to do this. So I always say African filter has been a God-given opportunity because I could not create a job title or a job role that was like this. It's amazing. I'm glad you said that because as you were speaking and telling us that you applied for a job at Africa No Filter, my expectation as the audience will have learned from how I introduced you earlier was that actually you created this organization, but you've clarified that you didn't. But the point I wanted to make is actually you have been, even when you were an actress, when you were a producer, a presenter, and even the roles that I know you performed at both the Tony Elamelli Foundation and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, heavily involved in promoting a positive narrative of Africa, Mm -hmm. one that's nuanced and contemporary and reflects a progressive and dynamic continent. So it's always seemed to me that that this this was your mission, this was your purpose. And I've always thought of you as Frankly, the single person that I know who represents this very important issue of of African narrative and the importance of strategic storytelling. I want you to tell us more about the work of Africa No Filter, please. How do you go about the business of shifting perceptions, changing stereotypical narratives about Africa? And why is it so important? Well, let me start, first of all, with why we think it's important. Mm. And then I'll tell you you exactly how we go about doing it. So narratives matter. If you think about how narratives evolve, they evolve through stories told persistently over time. And for a very long time, the story that people hear about the continent and the countries that make it up are often of a similar vein. And when I first started, one of the things we did was we looked at what those stories were. And we found that there were five key frames through which most stories about Africa and the media were. One was the fact 
One was around poverty. The other was around poor leadership. The other was corruption, conflict, and disease. If you're reading a story about any country in Africa, chances are it would fit nicely, or the way that story was told was around one of those five things. And it led us to the understanding that the narrative as a result of these stories is that Africa is broken because everybody's trying to fix us. The second narrative is that Africans are dependent because often the stories are being told from a perspective of a global north or a richer country about the problems in Africa. And the third thing, or the third narrative, is that Africans have lacked the agency to make the change. It's somehow we can't do this ourselves. So those are the three narratives that we've sort of identified and we're working against. But because we understand how narratives evolve through stories, the only way to change a narrative is by changing the underlying stories. And the reason we think it's important is that narratives inform your beliefs, your perceptions about a thing. I mean, if you think about, you know, I'll, I'll give my example. I, when I think about America, I think of this sort of place that, you know, it's got everything. And if there was a world war, I'd want America in my corner, right? And do you know where I got that from? That's from watching things like Top Gun. That's from watching all these movies where no matter what, you know, an Apache helicopter would swoop in and just fix everything. And it's, it's stories. It wasn't that somebody sat me down and said, here, you know, here is the amount of money that America spends on defense. And it's the same with Africa. It's the stories people are persistently told. And it's things like, you know, Save the Children, UNICEF, these organizations doing very, very good work, but keep telling us that children are starving, that keep telling us that there's a drought coming, and there is in certain parts of the continent. But the problem with that, it becomes the single story of Africa, because nobody's telling the counter story, the fact that there is progress, the fact that there are jobs, the fact that I'm living in Africa, and I'm living a very good life. So we're not saying that this is a PR job for the continent in that there isn't poverty, there isn't corruption, there isn't conflict. There are, but it's not all there is. And that's a very important distinction because we need to balance the image people have because it has an implication. When you think about where you're going to invest your money and all you see are images of starving children and drought and corruption and conflict, you're not going to put your money into Africa. And I often say that I think Bill Gates did more when he worked or led or started Microsoft than he did with his foundation. I don't think right now that Bill invests in Africa. He pumps huge amounts of money through his foundation into Africa. And I think that's a reflection of where you think the return is. So it does matter what you think, particularly where the continent is at a, it's not an inflection point, but we have got to develop. We cannot stay in this sort of constant being a beneficiary of Global North's finances. We can't. We have got to develop and reach the potential that I know is there. And the only way to do that is to change the way the world sees us, because it also means that we change the way we as Africans see ourselves. I can go on forever, Marcus, but let me stop there. Let me invite you to tell us what specific initiatives you pursue to try and achieve that. What's a, a very big objective around changing the narrative, the image, if you will, of an entire continent? How do you go about that? I mean, I think in my head, it's a very simple challenge, an ambitious goal, but it's very simple because we're a narrative change organization. And I've, I've talked about the way to change a narrative is to change the underlying stories. So when I give mm. the, the elevator pitch about 
African filter, I talk about the fact that we work with storytellers and that's essentially what we do in a sentence. But we have four key things that we do in order to help us do that. One of the things we do is that we invest in a lot of research because when you talk about storytelling and storytellers, it could be very nebulous. Oh, they're just a storytelling organization, stories. But what we do is we invest in research so that when we talk to storytellers or we talk about the importance of changing stories, we've got evidence, we've got data. So we've done some really interesting reports like how African media covers Africa, for example, because I think the perception was that it's all Western media perpetuating the narratives. But actually it's not. A lot of it is to do with the way we as Africans write about the continent. So that's one thing we've done. We've also done research around narratives around doing business in Africa and the really interesting findings in that. So Doing research is one thing, and the research does two things. It informs our strategies, because one of the things we did as a result of the How African Media Covers Africa was we launched a news agency called BIRD, because one of the key findings from that report was that news editors on the continent did not have African sources to find these alternative stories. So they were stuck with Reuters and AFP, who traffic in these sort of negative narrative stories. So we launched BIRD, which is, and I'll talk about that a bit more. So the first thing we do is research. The second thing we do is we are a grant maker. African Filter is blessed with lots of funds from nine US and UK based foundations who give us money to do the work we do. Of that, we give out about a million dollars a year and the money goes to storytellers. We consider storytellers to be two types, one in the media, so we give money to media organizations and to journalists, and that for a lot of things. And we also consider people in the arts and culture sector. So that's from storytellers in film, for example, to graphic designers, graphic artists, to we've given performance artists, we've given money to musicians, because there are multiple ways to influence and to tell stories. So the second thing we do is that we are a grant maker. And like I said, our money is really to do two things. It's to stimulate content, to generate content, because we're also aware that a lot of storytellers in Africa don't have the money because the arts and the culture sector is not a well-funded area. So African Oculta is one of the few African funders who fund the arts and culture. And I'm really proud of the work we're doing there. And the second thing, the thing we do is, apart from generating content, is to try and support the ecosystem around storytellers. So anything from capacity building grants to making sure that organizations who are already supporting storytellers, we're supporting them. So there's a lot of work that we're doing in that. So that's our second thing. And then very quickly, the third thing we do is we're building community because we know we are not the only organization trying to shift narrative. We're probably one of the few that are well-funded to do it. So we're trying to get and identify people who are doing it. I mean, every so often people just send me, oh, look at this amazing video. This content creator's done something on trying to challenge narratives. And the woman I often talk about is a young woman. She's Tanzanian American. So based in the US, she's got, last time I looked, she had about half a million followers on TikTok. But some of her videos had gotten about four to five million views. And her content her platform is called Herbari and Jerry, which means good news because she got tired of the negative stuff she was reading. So she puts out good news on Africa. So we've given her a grant. She's exactly the type of new media content creator where people are going to look for content. So that's, you know, 
I, I love the idea. I love working with young people who are creative, who are just redefining news and putting out on their platforms. Bring, trying to bring more people like her together into our network with existing established organizations. For example, we work with the continent. They're one of our grantees. They are kind of trying to shift the way journalists... That's the, the of, Mail and Guardian publication, just for the benefit of our audience. Yeah. And I think they spun yeah. off now completely um, on them. But but yeah, so th there's that. So there's the established to the sort of new media and everything in between. So we're trying to build a community of, of people around that. And the fourth and final thing that we do, Marcus, is that we're trying to do more advocacy. Advocacy and just you know, be a bit of a watchdog for narrative because there isn't an, an organization that is better set up to do that. And the sort of projects we were doing under that, we will be shortly launching this global media index where we're ranking 20 of the global media outlets that cover Africa, everything from CNN, Al Jazeera to BBC, to show actually how do they cover Africa? What's the headline? What's the content that they're actually putting out? How many stories do they put out? How many African journalists are actually writing these stories? And then we're going to rank them. But the idea is not to highlight who's doing badly or who's writing terrible stories. We actually want to highlight who's doing well. What does a good, nuanced, contextualized story about Africa look like? That's why we're doing that. So there's that. We've put out content like how to write about Africa, eight steps to ethical storytelling. You know, it's just there's a lot of tools we've got, but we're now bringing it together under this advocacy umbrella where we are actually advocating for hashtag better representation for Africa. So that's one big thing that will be a bigger focus for this year. And I'm going to stop there. Those are four things that we do. And there's multiple projects underneath that. And I'm always scared to tell people what we do because they get overwhelmed by it all. I will tell you, Marcus, the reason why we do so much is that, first of all, we've got incredible partners. This is not Africano Filter waking up. So, for example, the Global Media Index is a grant to the University of Cape Town. They're doing it. We have over 164 grantees that we are working with and partners that we fund. So there's latitude for us to do a lot because we outsource it. We remain a small organization. That's probably about I don't know, eight, nine of us altogether. But we're able to do stuff because... We've got funds, which is amazing that we've got the fund, funding to do it. But also, we are not the doers a lot of the time. We are the enablers. And that's what African Filter set up to be. So if you removed African Filter from the equation, these things should be able to carry on. And one thing I've realized is that we've been a catalyst for a lot of organizations to get additional funding because we are often the first funding from a philanthropic organization they've ever received. That's something I'm quite proud of as well. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. You're curating a collective that includes, as you say, some, some big media institutions, but also individual storytellers working in different medium and artists and, and singers, as, as you referenced. A big portfolio of work, as you were speaking there about global media and how it reports on Africa and introducing the index that you'll be producing, I think, later this year. I was just reflecting on a piece of work that we did at Africa Practice 20 years ago now. Um, where we did some quite rudimentary research, but revealing nonetheless, that showed at the time that Argentina received more economic and business coverage in global media than the entire continent of Africa did at the time. Over the last 20 years, a lot has improved in terms of certainly economic and business coverage of the continent. And the media landscape has fragmented and it encompasses, as you were pointing out, not just sort of media organizations, but individual influencers on, on social media who have big followings like the lady you referenced in North America. 
as you weigh up your priorities and which institutions you work with, how do you select between whether you work with sort of traditional media and the importance of their role and contribution to fair and balanced reporting or better representation, as you say, and the more creatives and possibly younger generation who are working through social media? Is there any prioritization that you assign there or are there any insights that you can give us about how you work with this really broad community? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's a really good question because I think the assumption and the easy way is to focus on the visible media outlets that you can see. You know, you can see Mm. CNN, BBC, you know, content, they're there. Whereas the others, often you have to go find them. And that's why I said that a lot of people send me content creators who are making content that feeds exactly this anti-narrative we're trying to go against. And what I find is that a lot of our call-outs, in fact, all of our call-outs are on social media, because one of the first things we realize is that people often said, oh, in order to get money from, you know, organizations like yourself, we have to know people and we don't know people. And I said, great, no, you don't need to know people. You need to have a social media account. You need to follow us. So we're very, very open when we have our grant call-outs. The downside is we get huge numbers and, you know, we can't give everybody money. But what we've also started doing is trying to do capacity building through some of the programs we do. So we'll do a webinar on how to apply for grants, for example, because we know there's a lot of money. And we put out a lot of social media posts on hot opportunities when we see opportunities for content creators and, you know, storytellers to apply for funding. So I feel that in terms of money that we give out, we probably give out, I don't know, 50-50, I would say, because we have this category of grants called Picaree Storytellers Fund, where we give up to $2,000 out to a content creator to make something, a storyteller to, to help them do something. But then we've got bigger grants, which we'll give out to a media organization, for example, as an operational support grant so that they can hire a deputy editor or there's a they want to do a series on something. We give some money funding to True Africa. They did a series on women, African women, which we eventually turned into an ebook. So I feel that you can't ignore one for the other because there's a lot of research that shows that people are, to a certain extent, turning away from the traditional media outlets and focusing in on these content creators, these new storytellers on on new media platforms because of the content. And I use this research that was done just before COVID by an organization in Kenya called Odipadev. And they looked at the top or the 16 media outlets in Kenya and their posts on Facebook and Instagram. And what they saw was that the top I think 50, 60 stories that were most engaged with across these 16 media outlets were human interest stories. It wasn't the political stories. It wasn't the stories of conflict and the political, you know, the elections and all the stuff that traditional media tend to focus on. People don't want those stories. And I think that traditional media have to understand that, yes, they need to tell us about the politics and, you know, all the stuff that's going on and it's very serious and it's very important. But actually what people want is a, to be entertained, they want to be inspired, and the human interest stories do that. I'm assuming that there are many more human interest stories that bound today, distinct from where we might have been five, ten years ago. Is that the case? Is that what your research is, is showing? Um, we, we haven't done specific research that, that I can speak to that shows that there's an mm. increase in the number of human interest stories. But funnily enough, one of the 
piece of research we're going to be doing this year is just looking at the composition of news in on media platforms. So how much of it is politics? How much of it mm. is business? How much of it's sport versus human interest? When we did the How African Media Covers Africa, we looked at, say, a newspaper in South Africa and looked at how much coverage and what sort of coverage they had about other African countries. And what we saw is that 81% of what anybody, if you're sitting in South Africa reading about Ghana or Kenya, 81% of the stories you're reading were hard news. It was events driven, it was an election here, it was, you know, at the time we did it NSARS in Nigeria. Whereas we found that it was 7% of the stories we found were human interest and 4% were on arts and culture. And if you think about one of the biggest exports this continent has to the rest of the world, it is our arts and culture. It's our Afrobeats, you know, and mm. in the music business, it's Nollywood. And we're not even writing about this stuff. So there is definite progress. There's definitely been a huge difference, I think. And, you know, we, we look at some of this how do I say that? We look at stuff that happens intermittently. So we put out a, a monthly newsletter and part of it is where we're seeing narrative progress. So when Burner Boy wasn't the front cover of British GQ, that's great for us, right? Mm. When we see stories of, I don't know, Germany apologizing to Namibia for, for the past, it's like, great, this is narrative progress because we're covering stories that are making us as Africans look like we have agency. And, and that's really important. So, yeah, so I think there's lots of individual things that are happening. And I think part of our role as this sort of watchdog organization is to try and bring this together. So there's a bigger consciousness that actually things are changing because that's actually why we're doing this. Do you, do you have any information around the sort of quantums of, of investment and money that goes into arts and culture on the continent? Um, and any, any means of comparing that with, with other other regions of the world, I'm assuming it's it's low. Minuscule. I don't I don't have mm. numbers of how much goes into it, but there is data. And I know that something yeah. like the entire, you know, creative and cultural industry in Africa is worth it's something like five hundred million dollars and employs like really? you know, five thousand yeah. people. It's ridiculous. We contribute as a continent, I think one percent to creative output in the world. I mean, the, the, the numbers are a, a tiny, but what I feel that people need to understand about the creative and cultural industry in Africa is that people think about it as, oh, you're the singer or you're the artist in the front or you're the actress. But what people fail to understand is there's a whole industry behind them of, you know, the production side. That's where the business mm. is. You know, mm. you know, if you put out a movie, look at all the credits that come up after the actors. It's an industry. It's an industry of employment opportunities there. So it's not just the front end, you know, creating cultural industry is not just about the singer or the fashion designer front. It's all the stuff that enables that to happen. And I think that's where we're missing a beat. We need to kind of create a pipeline for that. Otherwise, people continue to do their post-production in, say, South Africa. I do voiceovers. And I know a lot of Nigerian commercials come over to South Africa because they don't have the your expertise and we need to build that expertise not just on the creative side but the back end what enables creative you mentioned south africa there and for quite some time now they've had a, a really strong broadcast and tv industry and as you say a number of global films have traveled to south africa to film there and um, helped by the great climate that they have as well 
You mentioned Netflix too. I know that that organization is producing more African content for a global audience, which is great to see. We've seen amongst artists, African artists are exhibiting all over the world now and and African art is commanding a more and more of a, of a premium price. So things are changing. The fashion industry too is getting some international recognition. But as you say, huge runway for growth, given that we have so much successes in, the, in some areas in the way that you reference with Nollywood and opportunities to build really strong, big industries that would employ a lot of Africans. And so the efforts that you're making in giving spotlight to some of that industry and helping them with seed funding in the way that you've referenced is great. I wanted to pivot a little bit now, if I may. I wanted to talk about climate change. Now, there's a reason for this. I know that you've done a couple of pieces of research around climate. But last year, COP27, Africa's COP, hosted in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. One of the main outputs of COP was the agreement to establish a loss and damage fund. The agreement to do so was on the back largely of successful African advocacy. So in many cases, conducted over very many years to pressure the international community and particularly industrialized nations to recognize their responsibility to help developing countries who are victims of some of the the worst effects of, of climate change. So a really great example of coordinated and successful African advocacy. But in this case, whilst we might be wishing to celebrate that significant success, and, and there's reason to do that, of course, providing the money is actually put up, that the funding is, is availed, and we can't take that for granted. It's going to require continuous pressure. But reflecting on the fact that that was a significant success, on the other hand, does it not just exacerbate that entrenched, as you referred to it, I think earlier, feeling of victimhood, if that's an mm. appropriate term, I'm not sure it is, and that it further negates African agency to actually provide solutions to some of the challenges on the continent. I'm phrasing this badly, but I know, and I'm a passionate advocate for many of the solutions that African nations can bring to global humanity to address climate change, whether it's carbon sequestration through our abundant natural capital on the continent or abundant solar and hydro and case of some East African countries, geothermal energy potential, all with no emissions. And I wonder, as you think about climate and based on some of the, the research that I know you've done in this space, do you think that we're missing a trick here and we should be on the front foot as, as Africans in presenting the continent as, as a region that can genuinely present solutions for humanity, rather mm -hmm. than a region that is deserving of funding for loss and damage. No, I absolutely, absolutely think that the narrative currently around these wins at COP27 actually reinforced that sort of financial relationship Africa has with the global north, rich versus mm. poor. And that's stuff that we're trying to move away from, it still didn't show agency, right? In that, what are we as Africans doing to actually sort of tackle the climate change? And one of the things that we did was this report into who's talking about climate change in Africa. And actually the report we did was Africans, uh, climate change in Africa, are Africans sleepwalking to disaster? And that heading was based on a, a line in a BBC story about the fact that somehow Africans didn't seem to be aware that there was a climate 
catastrophe on on the agenda. And we seem to just maybe, I don't know what they thought we were thinking, but when we actually looked at Twitter, people were talking articles, we found that actually very few people talking about climate change in Africa were Africans. And in fact, mm. Greta Thunberg was the one who spoke the most about Africa. She's not African last time I checked. So, mm. what, you know, what we say, and when I say we, I mean, I actually wrote an opinion piece about how I feel there's a climate opportunity that we're missing because we keep talking about things like loss and damage and the financial part. And then when we're not talking about loss and damage, we're talking about how Africa is going to be the worst affected. And nobody's really providing solutions or showing the stories. Again, it comes back to stories of the people who are creating change. And, you know, you made the point about all the, the things that we have as assets, wind, hydro, solar, geothermal energy. You know, we have all the things, cobalt, graphite, lithium, manganese, mm. all the things that needed to produce electric batteries. We have the steel, the zinc, the aluminium. We can build the wind turbines. And, you know, there's so much we can do. Yet, we're not. And it's not them. It's actually us. We are not mm. developing these solutions. We're not asking specifically for money. I mean, I, I found this data point. You know, in, fact, in the last two decades, Africa has attracted only 2%, 2% of the billions of dollars that go into global renewable energy investments. And less than 3% of the jobs generated in this growing, growing sector comes to Africa. I think a few, not that long ago, I can't remember when it was exactly, Toyota recently announced that it was going to invest something like over $600 million in India because they were going to manufacture electric vehicle components. That one investment was going to create 3,500 jobs. Why are we as Africa not pitching or, or receiving these types of investments? You know, so I think it's just, it's, and I, again, I don't like to point the finger because as we say in Africa, when you point one finger, there's three of them pointing back at you. I think as Africans, we need to just be more strategic and think more long-term about how we're approaching climate because it is an opportunity, number one. And we know there are huge amounts of money and investment ready to go into anything that tackles climate. Are we ready? I don't know. Well, very eloquently put. Thank you. I'm pleased I invited you to talk on that subject. We're nearing the end of our time. And traditionally, I ask our guests about what they're reading at the moment or in the age of podcasts, what they might be listening to. So I wonder, Moki, if I can ask you to share some insights into what you're listening to or reading at the moment. Well, um, I had family over for Christmas. So I definitely had no time to, to read anything at all. But I am avid podcast listener and I have my own podcast, which I paused, um, called Women on Top. Had to get that in there. But the one that I recently discovered, the podcast that I'm listening to now is called Hard Fork. I'm loving. It's by the tech editor of the New York Times, and he basically talks about tech trends and what's happening in the tech world. So Hard Fork is what I, I'm listening to now quite a lot. And it was actually through them that I, I discovered ChatGPT. I don't know if you've come across that, this AI thing that writes for you. And I used it to write a post once, and it's brilliant. Yes, I did. I was sent a link to that by uh, one of my <laughs> colleagues over the holidays. So I haven't yes. yet looked at that, but I, but look I will. Look at be. it. Look at it. Great. Your own podcast, Women on Top. Let's plug that for our audience and we'll put a link in our show notes. Um, hard fought, I think. Hard fought. Yeah. By the way, I do have to say that 
long before people were listening to podcasts in Africa, I'd always listen to them. So I'd listen to all the storytelling ones. So that's first and foremost what I listen to, not, not the sort of text show. Got that. Well, listen, thank you so much for giving us your time. We wish you continued success with, with Africa No Filter and the important work that you're doing there. I know you don't need my good wishes. You're doing really well. I know you had a, just a, a new commitment of funding from many of your foundations, I think 10 or so global foundations who support your important work. So congratulations on everything that, that you're doing there. A lot of work to do, and you've got a big portfolio that you've just revealed for our audience with a small team reliant on what is a broad collective of organizations and storytellers that you work with. So thank you, Moki. Thanks so much for your time. And it's been really a great pleasure to spend this time with you. Thank you. Thank you, Marcus. Appreciate you giving me the platform. And of course, you know, I'm one of your biggest fans and I've used Africa practice every time I've had the opportunity. Thank you for tuning into a Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.